Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Internil Ghosh. Award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Florian, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? All good. Uh, enjoying the boost of the next year, 2022, but all good. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for joining in this first, year, uh, first week of the new year. Um, I know you're taking a, a bit of time out from your holidays to speak with me, so that's uh, much appreciated. Um, well, Florian, um, it's been a very interesting time uh, recently. We've uh, just come out of COP26, and I think there's just tremendous energy with uh, the European Green Deal and also the Build Back Better bill in the U.S. for sustainable uh, investment and, and having impact at the center of the economy going forward. Uh, maybe we just start, you know, as we go into 2022, what are your reflections on the, the path forward and uh, whether we're on the right track after COP26 and some of the other big themes in the world today about creating more social inclusion? Big topics indeed. Um, I was also present in Glasgow at COP26 and we had a discussion really on sustainable landscape investing. Um, but definitely, I mean, uh, ESG is a big theme um, and has been high on the agenda last year. Yeah, and the ESG topic overall in the investing space and also impact investing space is an important one. Probably one of the big, the, the two most important topics in impact investing overall are um, gender and climate. And you see that all over going through um, many themes uh, as main the main theories of change in impact investing. Um, and that makes it very interesting because um, you see a lot of capital moving into the ESG space, at least, or learning about. So it's not just making uh, profits, financial profits, but also really to look into how to, what, what these um, investments are actually doing, whether they're net negative, net zero, or actually net positive. So that's a very positive uh, trend we see. Um, we're a little bit worried about some impact washing or greenwashing themes because a lot of people see that it's not just maybe a flavor of the month, but rather um, a big theme for the decades to come. So, but there's a fine line, you know, whether you are really making a difference in the world or whether it's just for, let's say, marketing purposes. So those are the, the pieces which we are seeing um, in a more critical eye. But overall, um, it's actually good to see public, private, you know, um, players, major global players coming together and trying to make a difference in the world in a very positive sense. So again, we can go more into details into the different topics, but overall, I see, it, let's say, as a positive trend. However, from here to really solve the big endeavors and challenges of the world, there's a lot to do. But I believe the idea of um, uh, the public money and public efforts 
being in alignment with the private sectors and that they're actually talking to each other to find solutions in order to align themselves um, to trigger change is a very positive one. Florian, I'm so glad that you've made the distinction between real impact and uh, greenwashing. And also the point you made about the importance of public and private collaboration and the blending of public and private capital to achieve this real impact is a recurring theme in all, all of these podcasts about impact unicorns. Um, you've been someone who's been at the forefront and devoted most of your life to, to real impact in a number of ways. Tell us a little bit about you know, your journey to get to this point where you're now you know, managing partner at uh, Bamboo Capital, one of the preeminent impact investors, and you have a number of uh, roles which also are about creating impact leaders of the future. How did you get to this point? Yes, again, I just need to be very precise. I have not been in the impact investing space for a very, very long time. It's actually only six years. Um, and that, I think, is an important part to set also because, again, at Bamboo Capital Partner, with my partner, Jean-Philippe, who has been in this space for over 20 years, um, the collaboration we have is an important one because he has a certain legacy and the know-how on impact investing. But my eyes come into really um, looking at technology as a key lever to trigger change, especially in our case, um, access and affordability of goods and services. That's, uh, of course, a space I've been in for a long period of time. And then also the intention to create and collaborate public-private partnerships, where we started with Bamboo Capital about 14 years ago, purely on the private side, with our own funds, Fund 1, Fund 2, Fund 3, uh, theories of change, and the endeavor, of course, to trigger change as we do our for-profit investments. But that has now the last three to four years really pivoted into a much larger endeavor and scale because we're talking about partnerships. Because we have seen that if you look at the purely development space, that very often the monies provided, you know, which are for free, do not necessarily trigger change on the ground, especially in emerging markets where we are active. Um, and that's as a understanding that it's if you use that capital to seed companies and to help them to kick them off so that the private uh, money can come in at a later stage, that's actually a way where, where you have an ecosystem or transformation on the ground. But in, in order to do that, in order to de-risk those investments, you need to have the alignment of the public side or the grant givers and the private side the pure financial side and of course impact investing is exactly in the middle and that's where the understanding is not just that we look at our impact investing we have the theory of change and we want to trigger the change but we actually collaborate with the public and with non-for-profit capital have it as seed capital as catalytic capital and blended finance fund structures and then to do the investment in a more riskier space where we adjust the risk board for the investors and then have at the later stage, purely financial investors coming in. And I think that's where we see the role of number one, technology, number two, public-private partnerships with blended finance mechanisms, the understanding there, whether this is the World Bank, United Nations, whether this is large um, NGOs, all collaborating, UD Sony, with private investors to make it 
those investments invested before the private side is a big blessing. And then, of course, the big push since the millennials from an investment side, so as the money is moving to, you know, to the uh, generations Z, Z and beyond, is uh, the quest for change, the quest for a purpose. So, yes, I'm investing. Yes, I want to do something. But what does it actually do? Does it harm the planet or help the planet? Does it harm the people or help the people? So these three, these three elements make it really amazing because we see now flourishing and coming to place long-term partnerships between different player with players which have in the past not had really a relational understanding of their different world. They were more in silos and they're coming together. And this is what where brings me from my personal journey also in Bamboo Capital beyond itself to help others, other entrepreneurs and other uh, parties to, uh, to, um, to understand that and to trigger change. So you can look at it from a capital as a force for good when you look at impact investing or ESG, but you can also look at it from a business as a force for good. You know, how can I rephrase the core values of my company to actually have sustainable results, have a legacy beyond a pure financial one in the larger sense for all stakeholders. And that makes it very exciting. Well, that is a very interesting model, of course. So let's break it down. So I think what you're saying is there's, um, let's say there's the concept to build a company that has a, a positive social or environmental uh, impact or the potential to have one. Then it could be helpful to work with a, a public grant uh, writing body um, that could provide you know, access to land or tr fund training opportunities or fund some aspects of the cost of the, of the, of the business that, that make it more viable because the business would need a qualified workforce or premises to work on. And if these um, are subsidized to, to a certain extent because it's an immature ecosystem, it helps the business get off the ground. And then you're talking about, you know, construct like Bamboo Capital having the LPs in the fund be both a combination of public and private. So public investors potentially, let's say, like the World Bank coming in as an LP, um, maybe the anchor of the fund, but then with that in place, more private LPs able to come in and work uh, alongside the, the, the public anchors, uh, knowing that you know, these public anchors also bring know-how um, and uh, certain disciplines uh, that they would hold the fund manager to. And then you invest in the company, you let it grow to a point where it's uh, able to stand on its own feet uh, profitably and it becomes a viable investment for an IPO or private uh, investors who see this as a, as a viable commercial opportunity. Yes, and you have been nicely describing different elements or different factors to it. But if you look at... Our core focus is on the unprivileged population. You know, it's the half of the world population which does not live in a privileged area where you have money and with the money access to sorts of um, benefits, especially education and thereafter also job opportunities, you know, economic opportunities. That's what we are focusing on. And if you look at what is needed, to have access and affordability to goods and services. This is where the, the, the past 
you know, was much more challenging than it is what we are today. And I want to say that Africa, that the, the need for them to move away, you know, for people is specifically, if you look at um, how things go historically so if you are in an area where you are in a small village you know in rural areas in order for you to have a job opportunity or to grow with basically to move to a city to get a certain infrastructure and have the opportunity to participate or you would move from a from a, from a um, poorer country to a richer country to do so and this is the problem of we of the many of the of the, of the of the problems we see today on the migration side today, on the justice side today, on people being aware of certain things because they're connected to the internet and they're not just happy about it. And this is where we basically look at how can we provide, you know, investing companies and kick off SMEs, MSMEs actually, um, in these geographies to provide services and opportunities for the wealth, for the livelihoods, and uh, economic growth in these areas. And this is where the understanding is that in the past we have had a lot of um, grant money being provided for, for in these areas to help, but this is not, did not have a transformation approach. So now if you look at these companies, number one is you have typically in the lifetime of a company, the seed stage, you test it, proof of comp concept is done, then you start commercialization, then you have the Series A and the Series B, and then the Series C, when you're successful and scalable, it's actually a um, viable company to invest in. That's still the case. And this is the bridge where you need from venture capital, maybe, or even venture philanthropic, philanthropic money to kick in because uh, the ge geographies where we operate is uh, riskier or there's less infrastructure. That's a path. And then technology, having the major blessings, we've seen that. Uh, especially in Africa, you know, mobile money has had a major blessing thanks to the telecom. So from a, from a telephone communication point of view, initially, the communication now over data and then financing to it with microfinance, but microfinancing to go into mobile money and now going to fintech. It's a major place in Africa, very exciting to invest in. And then distributed energy, it's not the energy distribution, but the energy being distributed on the spot. So a lot of solar home units, which are connected remote control and provide opportunities and provide actually a credit rating or history to the population for them to then build on with micro insurances, with micro financing, but also with IoT access over the internet to education. So there's a really transformation happening. And in order to achieve that, you have to have multi stakeholders, multi players to, to, to create the transformation. And that's what I'm talking about. So we have specific tasks where you can see how technology has been kicking in into different waves and how that is being translated now into a major opportunity as you have startups popping up all over the world you have ecosystems you have governments uh, um, and, and industry organizations like smart africa for example been working on that in order to provide that access to the internet access to energy and access to finance if you're enjoying Impact Unicorns, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows to bring the most relevant Impact Venture stories to the podcast. If you would like to review the show, 
go to the Apple Podcast mobile app or iTunes to leave a rating and review. Maybe we could uh, illustrate uh, this model with an example. I'm, I'm always fascinated by the example of VBOX, which is one of your portfolio companies, which seems to achieve uh, many of these objectives all in one business model. It's energy inclusion, it's financial inclusion, it's empowerment of rural communities. Um, maybe you could walk us through that one and, and, and just illustrate how, how the model works in practice. Yes, uh, absolutely, Indranil. Uh, Specifically here is BPOC started off over 10 years ago actually to th think how to fight energy poverty in Africa. So it was initially more a mechanical approach of installing solar home units. And uh, with that energy, of course, they would charge their phone, have some light and maybe a fan. Yeah, And from there start the, the journey. But over the years, and it was very challenging, challenging because of the cash management, challenging because of how to provide service to these rural, rural remote homes, you know, from a distance, um, and challenging also to hit the price point where it's actually beneficial for the family to pay for such a service to then increase their wealth over time. And this is where the company about five, six years ago succeeded by creating a data platform. So it's a imagine a little bit like a Tesla, but bottom up rather than top down. And not a Tesla focusing on mobility at this stage, but focusing purely on the energy at the home and the according financing support to it. And therefore, the family creates a credit history over time. Um, and that's very exciting. So we started off initially um, selling some solar home units independently but that wouldn't solve the problem because at the end, these solar home units would, at this, you know, over a certain period of time, no longer work. There's no service. Now, what you see is a technology platform, you know, with over 400,000 400, households connected. The hardware has been measured, the performance. If something is, is there's a problem, the retail store in the village, the technician is flagged goes to the home and fixes the problem, but he knows already before going there what is actually the problem is, all through data. The second component is it's a 24-7 service, so the people need to rely on having the energy. They're not paying for the energy. They're paying only for the infrastructure to access the energy in this space, but also then other adjacent services around, including, of course, internet, and you're ending up with a rural connected home. Now that rural connected home is starting with energy and then can add on different services, all financed, yeah, whether it's LPG gas on the cooking side to go away from charcoal cooking to gas cooking at this stage, not electric yet. Um, then you can add on fridges, you can add on diff different appliances, but also most importantly is the credit history because it's predictable, the wealth and how good they manage their finances. And this is where it becomes really interesting because now you can see a path of, because many of the people are smallholder farmers, so it's also a way for them to sell their produce as well as uh, get access to all sorts of different services at a price point they can afford. And this is when you look at, like, uh, you know, the off-grid associations like Google, you know, they have uh, specifically measured the incremental wealth over time from households having no electricity to having electricity and thereafter. 
And that's a massive transformation. Now it's a big job to go home by home by home by home to install those. But once the household household is a connected home, there the real journey starts. So it's very exciting. We could be now at a threshold in seven countries in Africa. There's always a phase, you know, the, you know, proof of concept. Initially, we need a threshold of about a thousand households connected to tests, you know, whether the pricing is the right one, because from country to country, that varies a little bit. You know, also um, uh, the nuances of how to reach the population and how to uh, give, provide such a service. But at the end, it's pretty the same so that you can see um, the, the electricity is produced at home, but it's not really an electricity game. It's more a play around a smart utility grid with a, providing a major gateway to financing and to a lot of uh, other services kicking in, IoT also. So it's a very exciting time and a very exciting model, which is initially not easy because it's high-tech on the technology platform. It's low-tech on the devices. They have to be robust easy to service, but also it is uh, the combination of a service on the ground, distributed energy service, more retail-oriented, but it's still a grid, if you want to say so, at, as well as um, the, the different services kicking in at a very small price point. But summing all of them up becomes a very attractive business. And that's where we've seen now recently also the understanding is not just, again, as technology happens, it's not just an energy play for the energy service provider, let's say, the grid companies, because it's so different. It is not a pure telecom play, because, of course, we use mobile money, and because of the mobile money, the telecom providers like Safaricom, you know, they're providing them. This is not only. It is not a play only for, let's say, retail, because you have the retail stores, you know, it is not a play only by financing, like a you know, microfinance provider, which is in a sense also. Uh, and mostly it's maybe something more like an Amazon where you have a data platform and a real service on the ground being given. So it's very exciting, but you can see um, we see that scalable. We see a consolidation in the market coming in uh, and the, as the market matures. And that is a major gateway where people would no, no longer have to migrate out of, you know, into the cities or to richer countries, but have all sorts of transformation, job opportunities, economic access, and so on, thanks to such um, type of service on the ground. That's a very rich example. Um, I wonder maybe we could talk about an education example, because I often, you know, think about... Uh, education is, a, is a, one of the most challenging businesses because it is, um, however much you digitize it, it remains a people uh, business and you have to have a high quality to get the outcomes that you're, you're looking for. Um, do you have any examples of educational business models and how they've been having an impact? Uh, yes, we are involved in it and we're investing it. But now if you specifically understand that the problem relies very often on government intervention where it's needed and very often where it's not needed. So as you look at microfinance and banking licenses behind and being able to provide those, you know, and that's going into fintech, there's a learning on how to actually democratize access to finances 
not through the old brick and mortar banking. And that was one path where it's just much faster in Africa than in Europe and the US because of the incumbent technologies and the players in there. You see the same happening on energy, as I just explained, the energy access, yeah, because we're not selling energy which is regulated and the government has a play because it's big, you know, state, uh, producers selling energy to the population and then the government approves those or not, you know, and uh, very often sets the price. It is energy distribution. It's retail. It is not, pay, you know, buying the energy. That's a big, big change and using mobile money. Now, if you go the step further and the two Tough, tougher ones to crack our access to education, but much more access to healthcare. Because in education and healthcare, as well as the others, the government has a say. The government is in a country saying what is the official education the population should or should not have. Yeah, or as well in the healthcare sector, you know, what is approved, what is reimbursable, whether it's public health or private health. And very often it's a, you know, it's a public domain. And the government has a say. So to understand that the government should foster a democratization, a deregulation under certain premises so that the certain quality of services given is a learning curve. And you see that happening in EdTech specifically because EdTech is a major leeway over the internet in distance and now, in, especially in the virtual times with the pandemics happening, you know, where the connectivity is such a blessing that education can still happen can can happen uh they are the one of the problems still is the regulation and the government say and you can see fintech companies going big in china going big in india and governments come in and say hold a second you know it's not you to to provide to, to decide on the content of what the, my population should be educated on it is me so you see not necessarily the speaking the same language and having the same goals. So therefore, the maturity on edtech and health tech, especially, you know, from a private public side is less, not yet there. It's the next waves to come. So therefore, we wouldn't have at this stage some examples to shed or to share, which are at a scale and a maturity of the market, like the previous one in microfinance or energy access. But they will come. And therefore, we are looking specifically at, at tech companies. Um, and it's always, you know, in the geopolitical situation, when you look into smaller countries and very, you know, uh, uh, let's say much more vulnerable countries in terms of government changes, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, un less predictable path the next 10 years, how things might play out. That is more on the venture stage and earlier ones, but we are investing in some of the companies. Maybe some of the um, examples to shed is a little bit that education is going away from the old school education and sitting in a room and having a teacher in front into much more modern tools, which are much more effective. And that includes also even gamification of education. The gamification is, you know, more like a, TikTok style of building your profile of learning um, content from a young age, especially 
the younger generations. And that is a path where we see very exciting companies with very exciting models in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, which are scalable. And therefore, we try to invest into some of the early stage markets and proof of concept to see how they play out. But at this stage, I would not be able to share. Um, it would be a, too difficult to make a bet on the ones really being able to succeed in the future because of the discussion you're having between the governments, the government say, the type of an education, how it's being done, and that being also led by a lot of old school educational approaches versus to really look at the edtech space and all the things that are happening, which is really amazing and a big blessing for the uh, underprivileged uh, population in the world. I think in edtech also, uh, education, the, the recent experiences that we've all had with uh, blended learning because of COVID, um, where whether it's school age or university uh, age uh, students have been finding out some of the benefits, but also some of the, the drawbacks um, of, of pure digital and even hybrid education. Um, if you just look at edtech more broadly, um, even in more developed countries, do you think there's also um, emerging models where uh, a, a hybrid approach uh, gives all-round good results, uh, not just in necessarily knowledge retention or skill development, but also the the social and, and, and mental health aspects of, of education? Uh, it, it, it's a big discussion. You know, especially... If you look at two countries like the US or the UK, you know, where's the big gap between public and private education? You know, and you have the big schools and big brands and the big names. And if you go there, you have an ecosystem you tap into. It's not just the education you have, but also the people you meet around. Thereafter, you know, for you to find a job or to create a company or find investors. This is the old model. And therefore, I'm not sure how much we need hybrid models really i'm saying me because i we come from a face to face time you know an offline education that was my education now we're looking into learning about online education the younger generations are much faster if you look at for example the tech space itself a lot of people are not necessarily highly educated come from a business school with a big brand but really entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial side, you know, have learned their way through the online approaches and online businesses. This is where I, of course, I'm listening to a lot of people, some saying, no, 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 we have to go back to the interaction, physical interaction of people on the education side, because otherwise it would be bad because you have all type of, uh, you know, mental uh, impact on, on population, maybe, or maybe it's a totally two different way where we will learn from the younger generations much more on how to be more effective to educate on education in a better, faster, but also cheaper way. And that makes it then more fair for the underprivileged or unprivileged, uh, unlucky born people to say, I would like to go, I would like to have a good education, but I cannot afford it. So probably that will, will over time might actually shift that the the Harvards, the Yales, the Oxfords, you know, of the world will pivot into more 
large tech companies where it's not a high ticket to pay, but it's the overall economy of scale and education and the much more effective tools to bring education across to people around the world. And that's probably rather the future. But you can see that also all the big business schools, they have all now huge tentacles, which are on, you know, online tentacles, presence in others, in other parts of the world where it's not necessarily via a campus, you know, of real, where you have real estate and land and people going to, but all pivoting into, into much more sophisticated ed tech models. So we'll see how this play, this will play out because probably pre COVID, it wasn't that much of a topic we were looking at, but now it definitely is. And I believe that's to the benefit of the people around the world, especially ones which would not be able to afford the old model. There's some really interesting views there. I like the, the thought of uh, you know, Oxford becoming more of a, a large-scale global education platform versus an elite uh, uh, university where... Uh, it's all on campus. Interesting. Uh, a glimpse into the future, perhaps. Um, one of the things I wanted to explore with you is, is scale-up. Now, you described the catalytic role that you have for companies in, in emerging markets, especially. Um, but then in emerging markets, there are probably various challenges to scale-up, uh, scaling up a business that you wouldn't face in a developed market. I'm just wondering you know, what your experiences have been about what the challenges are and how to overcome them. And, you know, if there are any examples of the kind of partnerships or models uh, you've adopted to do so, it'd be very interesting, I think, to, to hear about that. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a good point you bring up here. So, um, let's say in the old world, the offline world was much more challenging just because of the distances of reaching people, the spread, you know, less densification of the population. Um, that was one of the big challenges in the past, and technology has changed that. So we look at all the companies we look into, they have to be tech-enabled, not just pure tech can be, but tech-enabled companies, whether this is access to energy, access to healthcare, access to finance, you know, fintech whether this is on the agri side also coming to distribution, aggregation, uh, especially for the smaller farmers. So that, that's a component we see, which is the technology. And that changes very much the, the potential for companies to scale. And technology uh, or tech-enabled companies are happening all over the place, and not just in the rich countries, but really all over. If you go to Nigeria, if you go to Togo, if you go to Rwanda, you know, if you go to Bangladesh, if you go to uh, Central American countries also. I mean, there's a lot going on. So the scale in the past was probably the issue, let's say, from an investor point of view, was you had certain companies at a scale where everybody wanted to invest. The pricing became very high, but you had a large amount of companies and SMEs which where would nobody really invest because it was just too risky. It was only the few ones. This is why we eat the our learning is that impact investing starts at a small scale with small tickets and that evolves over time. You know, as we were talking microfinance, you now going into energy access, and now going into education or going into healthcare, you start with the smaller ones. You have a lot of large investors coming in with large Asset, asset 
that the funds itself available of a ticket of 50, 100, 150 million per deal, that's not what we're looking at. We need the 150,000, 250,000, maybe 500, maybe a million. That's the part. And this is where the understanding is in order to do that investment in these geographies where the risk reward is just so way off because you cannot promise the return for a normal financial investor, you know, uh, given the risk of the investment. And this is where the learning comes actually that you can de-risk investment by using non-for-profit capital, which is not aiming a return. It is purely there to have a transformation. And whether this is a results-based finance on some of the mandates we have, for example, the World Bank and Energy Access, for example, in Haiti or Madagascar, where we try to create companies to kick them off, you know, with the results-based finance initially to then look at a more debt or equity financing to help them to scale. Now, and and those are the examples where we see there's a learning and sophistication happening now in the space of development, collaborating with impact investment, collaborating with for-profit investors. And that also turns then the Development has been done by a lot of countries by providing aid money to richer countries to poorer countries, but then also with the development finance organizations, which is not a pure sovereign wealth fund because there's a speed development mandate, but that's on the public side. But you can see the same happening now on the private side, not just family office. Of course, that's a space where historically in impact investing, a lot of family offices have participated in, but really also on large mainstream institutional investments, whether it's pension funds, you know, whether it's funder funds, whether it's insurers, and so on. And that and these these conversations are happening right now and trying to see how to actually scale the type of work we do on the ground. And that's where we are looking into not only blended finance, as I explained before, where you have different layers of different investors coming in, all aligned on the same theory of change of Financing smaller farmers, you know, or gender justice, or you know, um, energy access, or that other themes. That's one part, but also how to now, because these funds are all too small, because of small tickets, you need a lot of people doing the job. Is how to tap into mainstream finances. So how to address the financial mainstream market regulation and tools in a way to innovate, to so that a bond. Is benefiting a fund is benefiting, you know, the small tickets on the ground in a larger ecosystem where you have a set of funds doing that job. So that's what we are actually working on in terms of mainstreaming, hopefully in the future, mainstreaming the the large institutional capital to do the same job on the ground um, through. A blended finance, uh, more sophisticated model, um, so that mainstream financial tickets do not just stay there. And green bonds are, you know, looking at some infrastructure, some pieces, but really benefiting uh, the SMEs or MSMEs, because we believe, and our understanding is that the wealth of a nation is defined by the amount of SMEs they have, not just the large. Not just the government, but really the SMEs or MSMEs. And that's what we're focusing on in our work. Yeah, MSMEs, as you put it, are certainly the, the innovation and growth engine of, of economies. I think that's un- undisputed. 
Uh, and it's very exciting to hear some of the ideas you have about uh, um, en enabling the larger investors to have impact on the ground. So that's the scalability of capital, if you like. Uh, what about scaling operations? Because would there be challenges in your experience in emerging markets of finding enough qualified or trained workers or access to energy or other um, access infrastructure issues that could hold back the growth of a business? Um, and how are you trying to scale up uh, the enablement of those supporting factors? Very important topic. And this is where I think a lot of our effort goes into investing not in only in companies in emerging markets, but also in people. And that specifically is a focus on the indigenous population of the world around. So it's not just the, you know, let's say the wealthy people coming you know, from the rich countries to help the poor because it's the wrong way. It's really to invest in the future generations locally. And that's where I think we, as you, as we talked before, that you cannot have a, a siloed approach. You cannot just pick one SDG and you invest in one SDG. Or you cannot just say, I only look at microfinance. Yeah. Or I only look at education because it has to have a systemic approach. So as much as when we invest, for example, now, one example I can give, we have a partnership with Smart Africa. Smart Africa is a industry organization with 31 African nations. They collaborate on creating a single digital market. And you have, of course, other governments participating and you have big tech companies participating and you have large corporations participating. You know, they do an amazing work, but one of the problems they had is how to invest in startups in the seed stage phase, uh, which are in Burkina Faso, you know, which are in Djibouti or Benin, you know, which are not maybe the, the typical hubs where people would invest in. And Smart Africa works on creating also accelerators because it's important, as you say, you know, when you invest in a company is the educational process and the learning and, you know, for the management team and the founders also to go through a program so that the likelihood for, for them with their startup to succeed is higher. So this is where we are not only looking at the investment of investing in a company, you have to have a certain ecosystem. So we're looking at, for example, countries which have early adopted in Africa Startup Act so that we can legally have an environment for us to invest money in a company. Yeah, so that's one process. The second one is then not only focusing on, let's say, startups which are led by Western people, you know, as you say, or the, the global north, or maybe some, you know, diaspora yeah, who has done the education in the US and then comes back to Africa and then creates, which is then would be a more typical way to do, but really to look into the local people, indigenous people, and how to support the education of that. Therefore, my answer is not maybe a straightforward answer, but if you sum up the pieces, you see a major transformation happening, which is very exciting. So our intention with the Block Smart Africa Fund, for example, we have with Smart Africa is to invest in the next African champions. So it's not a, an approach where it brings, let's say, I take a Silicon Valley tech company and I hope to make it work in Africa. But it's really to looking at models and startups coming up with an educational program in Africa, in an African country. But we always look at a regional perspective, not just a national one, because in a tech company, you know, the, 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 um, 
the potential to, for financial returns is probably too small. It's just, if it's just an international uh, focus, you have maybe some bigger countries, but generally it's, we have a broader sense of a pan-African or regional West or East African approach because then the scale is there. And that means also that we are more likely to get our, the, 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 the financial returns we're targeting back. Over the past 20 years, I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience, every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities, investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, Powering Prosperity, A Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. Well, let's go full circle. We started this uh, conversation with thinking about what's what lies ahead in the future uh, post COP twenty six, and you mentioned the two great imperatives as being climate and also gender. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on um, how to close the gender inequality gap and and some of the practical ways you've found of doing that through your your work. I mean, historically, if you look at the microfinance space, which is where impact investing actually began 25, 30 years ago. You know, the likelihood to get your money back when you lend money was much higher, overproportionately higher when you lend to women than to men. So therefore we have, of course, a, let's say it's, you could flip the equation when you talk about a, a gender justice, as seeing if you have a gender lens, the likelihood for you to succeed in, a, in an MSME, in a geography, is actually higher by focusing on women than on men. This is then not only an equation on you know, the, the justice itself, but also a smarter way to invest. And this is one proportion. And then when you translate it into, let's say, maybe smallholder farmers, you know, that where the livelihood is a lot dependent on women and even the farming space very often. Yeah. So therefore it's also a natural focus to have to look at from a gender lens. Also, that's why we have some of our funds combining gender and climate. Because climate change has an overproportional impact, a negative impact, you know, on women around the world. Uh, so therefore, also in order to 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 solve it. Um, so 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 therefore, when when we look at inequality, inequality, of course, there's a gender component because male vices versus female. Yeah, and that's where we look at women-led, women-employed, or company having products benefiting women. That's, that's uh, one one of the clear themes to invest in. But then also it is uh, very often even a, a racial background. You know, not just the, the topics in the, the U.S. is busy with itself as a country, but really where people, when they would invest, you know, that people would typically invest more in you know, the white male 
you know, and then diaspora people, you know, rather than the indigenous one. And therefore, I think it's an important piece to understand that's a fundamental flaw. You know, someone to understand how a country works, how a community works in a country uh, is the local people, not just for us to show up and saying how to do things. So the more sophisticated we have, the better we end up the understanding, and the more we invest ourselves into those communities, not with an aspect to help, but with a for-profit approach. You know, if they earn money, we earn money, is, I think, a key element to understand how to uh, actually change and trigger change uh, on a sustainable and sustained long-term way. So I hope I was answering your question in the sense because it's not a straightforward path. But what could be seen as something negative, you know, unjust to be solved, actually is when you look at from an investment point of view, um, it's a smarter way to use that same lens to invest for the sake of the returns and the risk and the reward an investor might have. Fascinating perspective uh, that that could be an opportunity rather than a problem to be solved. Uh, Unique thoughts and many unique insights today. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Florian, and uh, very, very appreciative that you made time still on your holiday uh, to come and speak with me and uh, I'm sure that the listeners really enjoyed this podcast. So take care and uh, we look forward to another one of these uh, discussions uh, in the coming years. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And your, your questions have uh, triggered a lot of thoughts also in my end. Thank you so much. Great to have you. Take care, Florian. Thank you. Same to you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking Rate This Podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.